1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In New York, I'm John Fassman.
2: And in London, I'm Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. The war in Ukraine has affected food security far beyond the country's borders, but it's also put food security far into the future under threat. The fighting has endangered the country's extensive and unique bank of potential crop seeds.
1: And our language columnist joins us to discuss why many languages have different words for your mother's older sister, her younger sister, and her brother's wife. Tune in to our Cunodismo with your mishpocha. First up, though. Pakistan, like much of the world, has been coping with rising food and fuel prices, stemming largely from Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Its inflation rate is also soaring to almost 14% last month. That comes atop an economy already reeling from decades of mismanagement. But unlike the rest of the world, price hikes hit shortly after the ousting of a populist prime minister, sparking street protests. Imran Khan was removed in a controversial vote of no confidence on April 10th. But he remains wildly popular.
3: Well, in the last few months, Pakistan has seen a lot of political turmoil. Ben
1: Farmer covers Pakistan and Afghanistan for The Economist.
3: In early April, Imran Khan, the prime minister, the former cricketer, was kicked out of power after he lost... Uh, a no-confidence vote in the parliament. But if his opponents thought that he was going to leave quietly, that certainly hasn't happened. He's refused to leave the field. And in recent weeks, well, he has held huge rallies around the country. One of the biggest of these rallies was a march, in fact, and it was just a couple of weeks ago when he led his supporters on the capital, Islamabad, and said that he was going to stay just in until new elections are held.
1: What are these protests and rallies about?
3: Imran Khan feels that he was wrongly kicked out of power. He says that he was the victim of an American conspiracy that chose to kick him out of power because he had refused to bow to American wishes on foreign policy.
1: So Imran Khan feels he's been hard done by. The people who he's organized in the rallies, though, are they upset about Khan's treatment or are they upset about something else?
3: People are protesting against uh, price hikes for almost everything. Fuel is going up, produce is going up, cooking oil is going up, and it's really hurting a huge proportion of Pakistan. And these problems may be working in Khan's favor. May be able to tap into this anger at price rises and this blame that is being placed on the government. And so it sounds
1: as though that's quite a potent combination of anger over inflation and over how Imran Khan has been treated. He says he wants to hold sit ins until new elections are held. Do you think these protests will actually trigger new elections?
3: I think it is potentially a potent mix and it is potentially a problem for the new government. When Imran Khan's march arrived on May the 25th, he said he was going to stay until new elections were called. But in fact, he called his supporters off. Now, the party insiders at the time claimed that army generals had given assurances that elections would take place. Elections are currently scheduled for late 2023 when the current parliament term ends. Now, to bring them forward, that would have to be agreed by the new prime minister, Shabaz Sharif. But it's very hard to see why he would do that. And why is that? Bringing the elections forward at the say-so of Imran Khan would look like a capitulation. His government's less than two months old, and he's taken tentative steps towards repairing relations with the West. But Mr Khan's protests have kept him distracted. And that means he hasn't been able to devise a strategy to tackle the economic crisis.
1: And tell me a bit about that crisis.
3: Pakistan's finances are really in a wretched shape. The economy is reeling from decades of mismanagement and outsized military spending. And now it's been hit by the pandemic and the war in Ukraine. That's meant that last month inflation hit close to 14%, largely driven by the price of food and transport. At the same time, the rupee has lost 8% of its value. And foreign reserves have dwindled to 10 billion, which is only enough to cover imports for about six weeks. Now, Pakistan last sought the help of the IMF in 2019, and it got a $6 billion bailout. When Mr. Khan got the IMF bailout, he agreed to cut subsidies and reform the economy. But later, he instead reduced fuel prices in a populist move.
1: So it sounds as though the government is stuck between policies that are popular and those that make economic sense.
3: Absolutely. And that's going to be a choice that the government is going to have to make. And on May the 26th, Mr Sharif announced a cut in fuel subsidies, raising prices by 20%. That won approval from the IMF, which has made the resumption of its loan program conditional on policies that stabilize the economy. The currency in the stock market did rally slightly in response to that move, but it's subsequently fallen back again. What is popular with the IMF isn't always popular with voting public. And it feeds into a narrative of foreign influence as well. The government will have to introduce more unpopular measures to gain further credit from allies such as China and Saudi Arabia. And this month, it's likely to announce cuts to subsidies on electricity and the passage of an austerity budget.
1: So that sounds as though it will be unpopular. Does that increase the chances that that Khan will get back into office?
3: Well, getting the army generals to support a new election will be very hard. And an incumbent government in Pakistan always has an advantage in elections. But Mr Khan hasn't given up hope. The coming spate of painful economic moves will supply Mr Khan with plenty of excuses to paint the government as American stooges and enemies of the people. And I think the battle about whether there will be elections is set to run and run. Now to fix its economy, Pakistan badly needs stability. But this row over elections means it'll spend the coming months without it.
1: All right, Ben, thanks so much for joining us today.
3: All right, thank you.
0: Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, And business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.
4: It remains
2: a worrying time for the global food market. Grain blockades and export bans are one thing, but extreme weather events and fires from India to Australia to Canada suggest a longer, tougher fight. The world's food crops have been ruthlessly bred into what are called monocultures, single, well-defined cultivars that suit the world as it is today. Agronomists have something of an insurance policy for the world of the future, so-called seed banks around the world. These hold huge reserves of other potential crop seeds. More genetic diversity to plumb for more resilient or more productive crops. One of them is in Kharkiv in Ukraine. At least, some of it is.
5: When the shelling hit the national gene bank of plants in Ukraine's second largest city of Kharkiv, some of the rockets hit the national gene bank of plants and uh, destroyed the facility.
2: Maria Vilcek is a news editor at The Economist.
5: Many researchers thought that the precious seeds in its underground vault had also been lost. What was at risk there would be 150,000 samples of 1,802 species, and that represents about 500 types of crops. But luckily, despite the damage to the laboratory, the main reserves were safely hidden from the rockets. But it may have been a close-run thing, and Kharkiv's defenders have only now repelled the Russian forces that were besieging the city.
2: And so how important is this particular seed vault?
5: The loss of this archive of genetic diversity could threaten not just decades of research, but the resilience of our food crops into the future. The diversity of planted crops has shrunk by 75% in the 20th century, as farmers concentrated their efforts on just a few reliable breeds. But climate change and increasing human populations worldwide are driving demand for novel approaches to plant breeding. And so these varieties that have been abandoned in the past may actually still conceal some valuable genetic properties, like, for example, a resistance to changing temperatures, to droughts, floods and new types of pests. Olga Trofintseva is an agricultural expert at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Ukraine, And she spoke with us from a busy cafe in Lviv and told me how precious these seed stores are to the world.
6: The Kharkiv Seed Bank is very important and very precious because we had there some of the very unique plant varieties and grain varieties in this seed bank. A loss of such a seed bank means for not only for Ukrainian but for the global agri-food science, uh, there loss of the varieties which could be used for their biodiversity, for instance.
5: So the war is not just threatening food security in the present day, but into the future as well.
2: But Ukraine's is not the world's only seed bank, right?
5: No, it's the main one in Ukraine, but then there are 1,700 such repositories around the world. For example, there's a big one in rural Sussex in Britain called the Millennium Seed Bank. And others around the world also specialize in a specific crop. So, for example, in Peru, you'd have potatoes, in the Philippines, rice. And a new facility has just opened in Colombia that specializes in beans. But several of these vaults around the world have also in the past been affected by conflict. So in 2002, Afghanistan's National Seed Bank in Kabul a year later, the seed bank in Abu Ghraib in Iraq and also a serious civil war forced its collection to be moved in 2012. But Olga told us that they never expected anything similar to this to happen in their institution. We
6: definitely didn't think that uh, something like that could happen to Ukraine. Russian aggressors. They are attacking civil, scientific, uh, any kind of other objects, not only military ones. And we didn't expect at all such barbaric behaviour of the Russian aggressors towards the uh, scientific objects, towards the civil objects in Ukraine.
5: Despite surviving the shelling, the Kharkiv seed vault has lost many skilled workers, some of them as soldiers, some of them as refugees. So it's still in danger. And that danger impacts more than just Ukraine.
6: It's about the food security uh, not only in Ukraine again, but about the global dimension of food security. And this is about that threat, about the long-term threat for the food security worldwide.
2: And so if these valuable collections are in in danger around the world, what's what's being done to protect them?
6: Well, a good practice
5: usually in many countries is to back up these seed collections abroad. So there's this vault in Svalbard, which is a remote Norwegian archipelago. And there in the side of a mountain in the permafrost, you have a main global backup institution. It currently holds more than a million samples and many of them on behalf of seed banks around the world. But the problem here is that Ukraine has actually lacked the resources to make use of this Norwegian seed bank. And only about 2% of its samples have duplicates in Svalbard. But the country does store some duplicates elsewhere around the world. Now, what's awkward is that one key location for those is the Vavilov Seed Bank in St. Petersburg. And now that's enemy territory and off-bounds.
2: So what's to be done then about the, the collection at Kharkiv?
5: As war rages on, I don't think this is unfortunately going to be a priority. It's more of a a matter for peacetime. And I think as I spoke to Olga, the hope is that after the war, Ukraine's agricultural research institutions will be able to diversify their connections. Until now, they've been hardwired into networks developed in the times of the Russian Empire and the Soviet Union. But that solely has to change. And linking to other institutions around the world will improve their resilience. And that will also improve the reach of its research. But while the main vault has survived, the troubling thing is, as Olga explains, that a lot of damage has already been done
6: great scale of destruction, a great scale of losses, uh, not only in the scientific and research institutes, but in general in agricultural companies, in agricultural sector in this region. And we still have some of the research institutes, unfortunately, in the occupation, like in Kherson region, like in Zaporizhia region, and in some eastern oblasts as well.
2: Maria, thank you very much for joining us.
6: Thank you, Jason.
1: When you come from a big family, a reunion can be a memory test. There are the aunts, the uncles, the grandparents, the in-laws, step-uncles, the great aunts, cousin, the second cousin, maybe third cousin, the fourth cousin, second husband, and so on. But for non-English speaking families, the layers of relation have much more detail. If you're speaking English and you
4: don't know how someone is related to you, if they're in your generation, you'll just say they're a cousin. I'm not sure what kind of cousin, but they're some kind of cousin. Lane Green writes Johnson, our column about language. And if they're in a generation above you, or even more than one, you'll say there's some kind of aunt or uncle. And that's about all most English speakers really think
1: about when it goes outside of the nearest and dearest relatives. So give us an example of how that plays out in the non-English speaking world, that sort of taxonomy of relations. Well, take, for example,
4: the words brother and sister, which seem pretty elemental and you wouldn't really need more or less than that. But in societies that really value age order and seniority very highly, there will often be a different term for your older brother as compared to your younger brother or your older sister as compared to your younger sister. For example, you have ge or gege. they're often doubled in Mandarin, jie Didi and Mei Mei. Uh, four words, not just two for brothers and sisters in Chinese to denote your older brother, younger brother, and so forth. And while there are generic terms, catch-all sibling type terms, if you're talking about them in the abstract, if you're speaking specifically of one of your brothers and you don't use one of those terms that lets the listener know whether they're older or younger,
1: it's going to be very strange. It's really one of those things that's marked in the language all the time. And so let's expand beyond brother and sister to brothers and sisters-in-law and the broader set of relations brought in by marriage. Other languages do a better job of specifying those than English does? Well, yeah, definitely. So in English, we have this weird suffix, in-law, and we say brother-in-law and sister-in-law. In
4: In French, it's a prefix, which is at least nicer. You can say your belle-mère or your beau-frère, which would be your mother-in-law or your brother-in-law. But beau and belle, as the French speakers will know, means beautiful. So if you refer to your mother-in-law, you call her your beautiful mother, which... I think it's kind of nice. In other languages, for example, in Spanish, you have lots of distinct words for the different relations. Your brother-in-law is your cuñado. Your mother and father-in-law are your suegra and suegro. Your son-in-law is yerno and things like that. And you need to learn these new words. What about outside of European languages? Well, there are languages that really pay a lot of attention, not just to seniority, but things like distinguishing your married relations from your blood relations. So in Arabic, first of all, there are different words for your uncles or aunts, depending on whether they are paternal or maternal uncles. An am or an amma is on your father's side, while a khayla or a is on your mother's side. But if someone marries your am, your paternal uncle, they don't become your amma or your aunt, they remain zawjat ami or the wife of your paternal uncle. So every time you refer to your aunt who's married to your father's brother, you sort of rehearse Paternal uncle's wife, paternal uncle's wife. And so you really are forced to keep track of these things. And the same goes for all of your cousins as well. If you have a male cousin who is the son of your paternal uncle, that person is called the son of your paternal uncle, Ibn Ammi. So um, you have to memorize and keep track of all these relations at all times, whereas we just throw cousin out there
1: to cover almost all these words. Why do you think... So many languages make these very fine distinctions that English does not.
4: That's a good question. I should say I'm often careful not to extrapolate too much from language to culture. We often assume if we know something about a language, then we can make all kinds of generalizations about the culture that must have produced that language, when often those are kind of shady but in this case, I think we really can point to a couple of things. The importance of seniority in a lot of East Asian cultures really does come straight from Confucianism. And so you see, for example, in Japanese, which inherited that tradition from China, the same sort of four-way distinction between the two siblings. And so you really see a, a strong cultural connection there that I think is
1: you know, that holds up. Does this sort of specificity effectively eliminate the possibility of vagueness? And I asked, let me give you some context. I come from a decent-sized Jewish family, and there's a wonderful Yiddish word, mishpocha, which means family, but in context is used to refer to people who you see at weddings and funerals who you're pretty sure you're related to, but you have no idea how. I can see that sort of concept or language being useful almost everywhere, no? Probably. I imagine that every
4: family has those people who are really on it with every relation. They know somebody's their third cousin once removed or that Henry Ford was a great great uncle or something like that. And it also has people who really just couldn't care less. But there's a famous saying in linguistics that while every language can say everything, some languages force you to say some things. So I think when we're talking about the family members, we have languages that really make you remember the relationships in much more detail every time you mention a specific cousin or uncle in a way that English doesn't. It's kind of like a constant mental training. And as a result, I'd really be very surprised if Chinese or Arabic speakers weren't really better for recalling the exact relationship at the family reunion when I'm just looking at a bunch of cousins I can't quite
3: remember.
1: All right, Lane, always great to talk to you. Thanks for stopping by today. Thanks, John. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts.
2: And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow.